0: My name is Iris Flores. I learned at a very early age that life is short.
1: Are we in the apocalypse? Maybe that's a question you've heard family members, coworkers, or friends ask from behind masked faces or video chat windows. As we face a global pandemic, racial tensions, and a fractured political climate, this feels like an apocalyptic time. These issues can divide us and put immense stress on our everyday lives. Whether it's brutality towards people of color captured on cell phone videos, partisan corruption, or seemingly continuous news of natural disasters, we are almost becoming desensitized to the tragedies that we witness. The word apocalypse comes from a Greek word that means an unveiling or unfolding of things not previously known, and which could not be known apart from the unveiling. This word has been co-opted to describe what some would call the end times, but the book of Daniel uses the apocalyptic style to catalog a time in biblical history when Daniel is used by God to allow an ancient people living in a powerful empire to see truth of the world as God sees it. It's powerful. Its purpose is to open the eyes of God's people. In a time when we're all wearing masks, how many of us have eyes to see the world the way that God does? Throughout the journey through Daniel, we will experience stories of people from our own church community as they share their experiences of apocalypse and awakening And discover that even when all hope seems lost, God is at work creating something beautiful. I met Iris through her husband, who served on the security team at Willow. She showed up to our journey through Daniel photoshoot timidly, but when we started shooting, we realized how much of a natural she was. So confident, fun, inspiring. I never would have thought this person was a police officer. Nor would I have thought that this person had grown up never having a true sense of place to call home. With minimal parental involvement or stability, it's from this place that God rescued Iris from a sense of wandering so that he could show her the promise of his plan. With all these stories, if you feel you're triggered or you feel your emotions welling up within you as you hear Iris' story, know that this is normal. This is what it is to empathize. You may be angry or sad or frustrated. And this is what it is to be human and share stories with each other. As you listen, lean into this discomfort and ask, how should I allow this person's experience to change my outlook on humanity?
0: My name is Iris Flores. I am kind of from everywhere. I was originally... Goring and Cabrini Green housing projects. It's a large part of my story and who I am because I lost my mother at the age of eight. I moved a lot. So I went to like 12 grammar schools and three high schools. So I'm from everywhere. I went to city schools. I went to the suburban schools. I went to school in Minnesota, whoever could take me. So I'm from everywhere, all over. (laughs) And I kind of love that about myself because I've had to deal with people from all walks of life. And when I lived in Cabrini Green, it wasn't like it is now. So originally, when we moved there, there were all ethnicities and races there, believe it or not. So my experience in Cabrini Green wasn't that horrible. We had a beautiful four bedroom, two bath, not too far from the lake. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people have the misconception that A lot of poor people are dirty and things like that, which I lived in a very clean, spotless house. My mother was meticulous. Like I said, I lost her and I moved all over.
1: For those people who don't know what Cabrini Green
0: is. It's a a housing project development and it was predominantly poor people. And unfortunately, it became majority African-American people. I moved back and forth. So after my mom passed, I left. I moved like every six months to a year. Um, My first day of kindergarten, I got beat up and I had a cute little matching rain jacket, boots, hat. And by the time I got home, it was all gone. I got beat up. They took my coat, my hat, my boots, so it probably wasn't a good place by the time I went to kindergarten. Yeah. My mother was bedridden. She had this horrible disease called scleroderma. So I didn't really have anyone I could run home to. It wasn't a traditional upbringing because we were poor. And my mother was a devout Catholic, so she had seven kids by my father, And ironically, when it came time to raising me, I think he decided he was all kitted out. So (laughs) I didn't have him around. He left when I think she was pregnant with me, if I'm not wrong. Mm. So that's a whole nother story because I ended up living with him two different stints after my mother died. Mm.
1: So you lost your mom when you were eight Mm -hmm. and you moved around a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a, a lot of struggles that go along with being a person that doesn't come from a mother and a father. I lived with my father on two different occasions. Once, right after my mother passed, probably within a year after she passed. That was a real short stint. My dad was a real bad alcoholic. He remarried, I think, as soon as he got the death certificate. He married a woman named Catherine who he had been with since he left my mother. The second time I moved with my father, I was going into my sophomore year in high school. And I didn't know him very well. And it's so interesting because my siblings grew up with him. Our experiences are totally different. Like yeah. he took them swimming and fishing and, and I got nothing. And I remember one time I was talking to my father and he couldn't remember my name. And he called me Tiger. And I knew he couldn't remember my name because we hardly ever saw each other. My father was very, very honest and very direct. I had been living with him for two weeks. So every single time I came home, every single time, my father and Catherine were sitting on the couch watching TV every time. And I would have to sit at the table and wait for them to go to bed before I could sleep on the couch. Mm. My father went and bought alcohol every day, and he took me with him. And my father was very personable. Everyone loved him. He could have been the mayor of Palatine. (laughs) So he would go into the liquor store, and there was this woman there named Lisa. And I don't know if this makes sense to you or not, but when you're— an African-American person and you're in a predominantly white community, when you see another black person, you kind of like have a... Well, I see any, you I, connection. You're good. Yeah. 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 So Lisa was an African-American woman. She was pregnant and she worked at the liquor store. She knew my dad. And I started going in there just to hang out with her when I didn't have anything to do. So we became friends within the two weeks I lived with my dad. So... I had a curfew at 10 o'clock. And when I got in the house, my dad and Catherine were not on the couch. I knew something was wrong because that was not normal. So my dad called me in the room. I said, hey, what's going on? And he says, you cannot live here any longer. And I'd like to know where you want to go. And I said, excuse me? I don't understand. And he goes, what are you, illiterate? I said, you can't live here anymore. I don't want the responsibility. So think of somewhere that you want to go. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Can I leave my things here until tomorrow? He said, you can stay here until tomorrow. I said, no, thank you. So I left and I walked over to Lisa's house. We lived in the same complex and we were just hanging out. And after a few minutes, she goes, wait a minute. You had a 10 o'clock curfew. What are you doing here? And I said, my dad told me I couldn't live there anymore. And she said, are you serious? And I said, yes. Her husband got up off the couch. They had two kids in twin beds. He went into the room. He put them in the same bed. He put their clothes in the combined drawers. And they said, you have a home here from now on. I moved in with them that night.
1: How long did you live with them?
0: I lived with them for about a year, maybe two. But it felt like 10. because they were the closest that I ever got to like a family, a mother, a father. We ate dinner together. It was the first time I had an experience where I felt like family. So unfortunately, they got divorced. She gave me the choice to move back to New Jersey with her or stay with him. And I said, it's time for me to find somebody in my family to stay with. So then that's when I went in stay with my sister, and we stayed together forever. But that's just one of the little things I went through. I think the week before my dad put me out, he sat me down at the kitchen table, and he told me that he had a life insurance policy. And I didn't even know what a life insurance policy was. And he said, I just want to make sure that that you understand I'm leaving you and your siblings all a dollar, So there's no confusion. When I die, Catherine gets everything. So I was like, okay. So I understood from him that I definitely should have no expectations of him. So that's what formed my attitude in life, that I don't have expectations from people. I don't expect people to show up. If they do, that's great, but I don't expect it. Mm. And I kind of went through life expecting to be disappointed by people. It kept me safe. And I try not to hold on to that attitude because I don't want to be, you know, stoic, but it keeps me safe. But I also found that um, it's hard for me to deal with entitled people who have expectations because no one owes you anything. It's so many other things that I went through, but that's just a little glimmer of something that formed my personality that made me as independent as I've always been because I never really felt like I had anyone to lean on. And there were times when I felt total and utter darkness where I lived in like unhealthy homes and there were some times when I didn't feel mentally the strongest And I always felt like God was the only person that I completely knew I could count on.
1: What made you think that?
0: I felt it. I felt it. And it was like, it was like God spoke to my spirit. Mm. He let me know that I didn't bring you this far to leave you.
1: As you understand it now, what role did faith play in in growing up?
0: Well, my mother was a very um, quiet woman. Mm -hmm. And because she was in excruciating pain all the time, I think she was heavily medicated. So she didn't talk to me a whole lot. But my first impressions of religion was um, Father Sebastian used to come to our house on Saturdays. We went to church, St. Joseph's, which was not far. We would go to church, I don't remember how often, but I never felt like I understood anything at church because it was standing, kneeling, sitting down. I didn't understand the hymns. So I never really felt like I got anything out of Mass. But then um, I ended up meeting some girls that lived in the same area, and they took me to a typical black church. I think it was like a Baptist church or something. Mm -hmm. And I totally freaked out because i had never had that experience before where people were like having the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues. So I was like totally petrified. (laughs) But I remember feeling some emotion. Like I didn't get that from the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that I ever felt like, God could have actually been like a thing that people could feel and connect with. Mm. I was looking for a new church. And before I went to the one in Barrington, I really felt like I developed a personal relationship with God at a church I went to in Evanston called First Church of God. Just some things were going on there that I wasn't comfortable with, so I stopped going. So I really was kind of just doing my own thing more through music than actually fellowshipping at an actual building, I fell in love with gospel music, and I sang in the choir, and I felt like I made my first true connection with God through music. Every Sunday, I would find myself fellowshipping with the Black stations that often play gospel music, and so many of those songs are so relevant to my journey through life, which a lot of it has been kind of dark that that's where I did most of my fellowshipping on my own. I still do it. So I ended up going to Willow. Went to the one in Barrington for a long time. And it was really interesting because I have two girls. One was like two and one was five. And my husband and I have always worked opposite shifts. So it was hard for us to go to church at the same time. And I had been praying and praying and praying that God would find the right service for him to go to. And there were several different times when we tried to go at the same time, and it just never worked out. One of us worked midnights, one of us worked afternoons. And it was amazing because when he finally got the opportunity to go to church with me, which he wasn't really interested because my husband didn't grow up with church, so he had no idea of spirituality. Yeah. The one time he finally got to go with me, it was a gangster mafia guy, I wish I knew his name, who was the speaker for the day. And his story was so similar to my husband's life that I knew that God saved him coming for that particular service. Mm. I knew it 100% without a doubt. That's cool. It was a beautiful thing because it made him realize that maybe there could be a connection that he could have with church. So I think that was the first real experience he had where he felt a connectedness. Yeah. Ironically, it got to the point in our relationship, because I worked midnights at the time, and a lot of Sunday mornings I wouldn't want to go because Mm. I'd just get in from work at like 6.30 in the morning. He had gotten to the point where he was taking our girls by himself. So it was so amazing how he was the primary church guy in the family. Mm -hmm. So just over the years, I've seen God work in his life. And he's just completely come to understand God on a whole different level. He recently got baptized. Mm -hmm and just watching God work in his life has been just another confirmation to me of how things happen in his time. Not always when we want. And I have this saying where I always say that we can see to the corner and God can see around the corner. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely taught me not to ever question God because things happen when they're supposed to. If I've learned nothing else through the multitude of things I've been through, I've definitely learned that every challenge, every struggle, every dark period, it was necessary for me to become who I am today. I always tell my kids, what won't kill you will make you strong. I'm so thankful for all the struggle because it's completely molded me. It's made me Who I am, I have so much to offer people because I can speak from a frame of reference. I feel like I give my kids such a strong foundation because I can pull from so many different areas and experiences and they know that I come from a place of true knowledge. Yeah. I had been in so many negative places. I promise you that I knew that God had his arms around me Hmm. because there was death. There was addiction. There was all sorts of things that a 16-year-old should not have been exposed to. And there was no parent to supervise me. I can't tell you how many nights I walked the streets of Chicago by myself at 2, 3, 4 a.m. at 15, 16. So I did everything on my own. And I know it was God. There's not a single thing in me that thinks it was anything other than that. And I always remember, because there was a time when I was very, very, very involved in church. I was in the choir. I was in the women's group. I was in the grace group, the prayer group, and I always remember the importance of leaving a little sprinkle of Jesus, because I know that that's my responsibility as a Christian. I have to plant a little seed. God's had my back because I've been somewhat faithful to what He wants me to do.
1: Yeah. From your story, it sounds like you guys have done an incredible job of Coming from a situation where you didn't have a home and creating a really valid and safe one for your kids.
0: We tried so hard. It's all the grace of God. I tell you, he has completely just wrapped his arms around our family. And it's truly, truly, truly a beautiful thing to see. It's just one more little sprinkle of proof that God is real. He's shown up for me time and time again because I prayed for my husband from the day I got him. But I really, really prayed that he would get to know God on a personal level. And we've been married 22 years now. And in the last 10 years, I've seen unbelievable growth and connectedness. It's a beautiful thing. It's really cool. God is real.
1: So much in your story is like beautiful and like profound, particularly with this journey through Daniel that we're doing. Daniel was taken from his home, didn't have a home, was kind of all over the place his whole life, you know, and subject to everybody else telling him where his home was. Hmm. And I just like, that is so obvious in your story. There's so many parallels to that. Just looking for some sort of refuge, right? And you found it in an unlikely place. There's such a cultural reckoning happening in regards to race right now. Mm I'm curious what your perspective on it is.
0: It's a really complicated subject for
1: me. I'm just learning, you know, I'm, I'm continually trying just want to engage and learn.
0: Mm -hmm. So like,
1: feel free to assume I know nothing.
0: (laughs) I'm going to speak to you like I speak to most people. Yeah. And unfortunately... A lot of people can't handle what I have to say because I speak from the heart. And my truth might not be anyone else's truth. I can only give you what I think. I'm a woman of color, African-American, black, whatever. My husband is Hispanic. I grew up all over the place. A large majority of my life I spend in white neighborhoods. I'm a police officer. So I see all the sides. I see all the sides. I am a a firm, firm, firm believer that no one owes you anything. If you want to make your situation better, if you want to make your circumstances better, you have to put in the work. Everyone can use some help. Don't get me wrong. I just don't believe that anyone owes anyone anything. I believe as long as you have two legs that's working, two arms that's working, a sound mind, You got to make things happen for yourself. Unfortunately, I think the problem is so complicated that it's not one particular thing. I think the biggest problem in my community is broken homes. That's what I think the biggest problem is. Although my father left when I was young, I still had one. And my brother's were good guys. And I think it's because they had a father and a mother who taught them values. I think when you come from a broken family, your mother might not know your father. They both might be on drugs. You're poor. No one's making sure you're eating balanced meals. No one's making sure you're going to school. I think that it's a lot of things that are the problem. I think that the judicial system is not where it should be. Of course, systemic racism has existed forever, and it might always exist. Absolutely, I understand that there are some problems with some police officers, but being a police officer married to a man who was a non-Black police officer I can tell you that all white police officers are not racist. I think that there are more good cops than bad cops, and I don't think that the cops are the problems. We have the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's unfortunate because I think there are two different things going on. I think that there's the sentence or the statement that black lives matters absolutely black lives matter and i think there's the movement of black lives matter and from where i sit and my understanding it can be associated with a lot of negativity mm-hmm. because they are against the police and They don't mind destroying people's property, and they don't mind causing damage. And unfortunately, everyone can pull in an audience and tell a story if they tell it right. But every story that you hear, it might not be right. And you have to be so careful with what you listen to because the person that's delivering the message might have a specific agenda. Mm -hmm. And there are times when I find myself listening to commentaries and I have to turn them off because they're so far from the truth. The average police officer doesn't wake up and say, I'm going to shoot a black guy today or a black woman today. That's not the way it happens. It's so sad because... Police officers don't want to do their jobs anymore because of the camera, because people are recording and you're getting a fraction of footage and a determination is being made. It's not the full picture. People have clumped all police officers in one group, and it's not fair to paint one group with a broad brush. Yeah. You have Mm, to see people on an individual basis. And being against the police is just as bad as being a racist. It's just as bad. So you have to know the totality of the circumstances. And when people ask me to discuss video and footage, I refuse to get caught up in that conversation because we've gotten to the place in society, if you don't feel exactly like the person you're speaking to, they don't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. And we don't have to see eye to eye a hundred percent or agree a hundred percent. We just have to have an intelligent dialogue and understand each other's opinions. My husband and I have different opinions all the time. And we talk about it, and he'll convince me to see his side, and I'll convince him to see my side. And sometimes we just have to disagree, and that's okay. Yeah. We don't have to always feel the same.
1: There are some things that we can agree on. Absolutely. That are- Non-negotiables. Absolutely. And that is God's presence in the in the world. And the rest of it is going to be pretty divisive, yeah. especially right now.
0: I actually looked at my husband a couple of days ago and I said, it feels like these are the end of times. I remember driving to work one morning, listening to talk radio, and I just got so sad from all the negativity. I just cried halfway to work, because it just seems like we're in such a dark space. I told my husband, I said, I don't know where all these white people are that's protesting with the black people, because right now I'm feeling the most racial tensions I've ever felt in my life. It's only two times in my life where I literally felt like blacks and whites were against each other, Mm. I was pumping gas at Costco a couple of weeks ago and a guy positioned his body where I couldn't get out. And he just eyeballed us like the whole time. And she was like, Mom, is he looking at us like that because we're not white? And I said, it feels like it. And I said, this is one of those times when you have to learn nonverbals. And I said, he's obviously not having a good day and not going to let us out for whatever reason. I said, that's OK. We'll just sit here and wait. But I could have got out and confronted them and made it ugly. That's just a large part of how we have to sometimes be bigger, be calm, and just make the right choices. And more than anything, definitely set good examples in front of our kids because what I wanted to say to him, you know, of course I wouldn't. I just don't believe in challenging people, period. My right. job teaches me that. Yeah. You don't challenge people because you could very easily get yourself hurt.
1: Yeah. I think it is easy to paint people with a broad brush because it's easier for our brains to process it. You know, it's thus versus them. Yeah. Straightforward, right? Yeah. And I think that the difficulty and honestly, what the kingdom of God looks like is an individualistic basis for approaching situations.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: You know, there, like you said, it is a complicated issue. There is systemic racism. You know, the difficulty of, of navigating that now is it's not like you can go back. It's not like you can change it. But you can do the best you can going forward and understanding, like you said, sometimes we just have to have a conversation and know that neither of us are going to change our minds to get to that point. And like even going into the election season, you Mm -hmm. know, how many people's minds get changed by through argument? Yeah. Not many.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So,
1: you know, it's interesting you said, are we living in the times of revelation? You know, the book of Daniel is called apocalyptic literature. Okay. Which revelation... Apocalypse. Those words just mean an unveiling. Mm -hmm. So it's taking off a blindfold, seeing clearly for the first time. And I think so many of us think that revelation is, is a time for trial. Yeah. And the reason for the trial is that we can all see clearly for the first time. Hmm. And that's the difficulty of maybe this is the time of revelation, Hmm. but maybe it just means that there's a lot of change that we're all going to have to go through and it's going to be painful.
0: You know, it's such a complicated thing. And of course, with my job, I see racism. I see sexism being who I am and where I am. So, of course, we know racism exists. You know, we can't deny that, you know, but it just it hurts my heart to see all the officers who show up to work every day because they genuinely think they're making a difference And, you know, it's such a complicated job. It's a super complicated job. It's never one reason why things happen. And it's just so sad that it's come down to race because I think it's usually not the reason, you know. It's usually not the reason.
1: I just want to thank you for doing it can't imagine going through what you all go through day in and day out, especially right now.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a really hard time. And it's so sad because people don't see police officers as human beings. And they have the same flaws as everyone else. Yeah. You know, they suffer from anxiety, depression, bipolar. Right before they got that call, their wife called and told them she was moving out. You know, they suffer from the same things they're not superman and superwoman no matter what people think you know i think and, that's part
1: of it we've created this idea that they should yeah. be superheroes mm-hmm. and completely impenetrable yep.
0: and
1: yeah yeah it's not real turns out everybody on this planet yeah all the people are just people absolutely. not superheroes you know
0: absolutely
1: it's tough well if you could tell people listening to this they'd probably see your pictures pictures with you and your daughter and them. Um, what should people know about you
0: You should know that I believe that we have no time to waste. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Don't play games with people. Don't lie to people. If you don't want drama in your life, don't create drama. Your life is your choice. We are free-willed individuals. And as long as you're straight with people, your life is so simple. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. Communicate with people. Let them know how you're feeling. Take the guessing out. People can't read your minds. Don't be afraid to be honest with people. It's okay to make people uncomfortable. It's okay to challenge people. It's okay to say no to people. It's okay. Okay. Just be your true self. I learned at a very early age that life is short. Mm. And we don't have a whole lot of time to waste. And seriously, my job compiled with my childhood, when I leave my family, I leave with the mindset that I might not come back because I've seen strange things. You just don't know. So don't assume I'm living to 80. Don't assume that... My kids are going to bury me every time I deal with people. I deal with them like it might be the last time I see them. So I tell my partners at work, if anything ever happens to me, you know that I genuinely love you. You have no doubts about that. When you treat people right, you don't have to have any regrets. And that's why you live your fullest truth with people, because you know genuinely how I feel about you. No guessing, no guessing. It's so easy, once you start doing it, it's so easy. And you know, I am probably guilty and it's not always a Christian attitude to have, but I'm probably guilty of cutting people out of my life because I don't have time to waste. And when I see these indicators that we're not on the same sheet of music because I'm not in the business of changing people, I'll move on.
1: Yeah, you let Jesus do that. Yeah. That's yep. not your job. Absolutely. So, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for coming.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Let's all agree that it's okay to disagree that we won't paint each other or ourselves with a broad brush. You never know where people are coming from. Like Daniel, Iris was without a home. She felt like a foreigner in her own land. She didn't know who to depend on. What we know is that God's timing and God's plan will ultimately take place to show us where we should be at home. That should bring us comfort today as we seek what's coming tomorrow. This is an apocalypse. This is a reckoning with ourselves and the world around us. Together, let's embrace the apocalypse as we begin seeing people how God sees them. With eyes to see and ears to hear. This episode was recorded as a part of the Journey Through Daniel study at Willow Creek North Shore, a location of Willow Creek Community Church. It was produced by me, Tyler Hoff, with contributing producers Caleb Wilcox and Grace Zerker, and edited by Abby Circatella. Special thanks to our audio engineer, Matthew Skripsinski, And if you haven't, jump in with us for the Journey Through Daniel. We'll see you then.